Welcome to the Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of mainstream media and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub podcast, Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should be spending more time and attention focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Samuel Hammond, a Canadian-born, Washington-based policy scholar who writes about a diverse set of topics, including income support programs, family benefits, innovation and technology, and even supersonic flight. He's the Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy at the Niskanen Centre and previously served as an economist in the Government of Canada. I'm grateful to be joined by Sam to talk a bit about some of his policy research and how it fits in a broader debate about the future of conservative politics and policy. Sam, let's start with your career trajectory. You've recently celebrated your 30th birthday, and yet you've already been published in the New York Times and the Atlantic and been cited by David Brooks as a leading thinker involved in shaping the future of conservative politics and policy. How does a Canadian arrive in Washington and come to have such prominence in American public policy debates? Why do you think your thinking and writing is resonating in the current moment? Is your Canadianness a virtue? Oh, those are great questions. You know, sometimes I wonder how it happened too. I, <laughs> you know, I think that for better or worse, DC is very elite driven and elite network driven. And on any given issue, there's maybe a thousand people max that you have to have lunch with. If that, you, you really just need, you know, like a fraction of that because they're all mutuals with each other. <laughs> so, you know, my, my entry into the, into DC was through George Mason. I did a graduate program at Carleton University, their MA program. And then I did another graduate degree at George Mason because I was always fascinated with that sort of ecosystem of libertarian thinkers in Arlington. And it was within the Mercatus program. And Mercatus is sort of a university research center, but it's very policy oriented. And so they did a great job of sort of trying to bridge that gap from academic economist to, you know, how to get a think tank job, how to work in public policy or folks who were citizens, you know, placing them in federal agencies, potentially. So in my case, I got really lucky because I got hired straight out of that program, actually, while still in that program, into the Niskanen Center. And I think the only reason that happened so quickly is because I had a rich portfolio of writing on sort of the intersection of, you know, libertarian, classically liberal philosophy and politics. And Niskanen, as a young sort of a heterodox libertarian organization, I had Will Wilkinson there at the time, and I was a big Will Wilkinson fan as a kid. So I was sort of in the right place at the right time and with a very unique set of intellectual interests that aligned with the stars, right? To the question of, is it a virtue? I think it's a huge virtue. You know, one, because in American politics, there's a lot of parochialism. You know, this is a Canadian cliche of uh, our stereotype of America that turns out to be totally true. <laughs> and being from uh, another country, especially an adjacent country with like you know, it'd be one thing if I was from, you know, Bulgaria or something that's something totally different. Uh, but being f from a place that is broadly similar, 
we like to exaggerate our differences, but it's probably similar. It gives you a comparative perspective, which is really useful in public policy and which is sorely lacking in a lot of the DC policy world because America has this conceit of being at the frontier. And so they don't need to learn from their countries and or, you know, we're going to just use the 50 states of the laboratories of 50 states and learn from that. You know, I, I sometimes joke that if it wasn't a, if it wasn't a pilot program in Wisconsin in 1996, it never happened, right? <laughs> um, so bringing that outside but uh, adjacent perspective has um, been really useful. And I also find that there are a lot of um, Canadian, either either Canadian sleeper cells or uh, Canadian uh, enviers, you know, p- people who, you know, have a weird fascination and are, are interested in my perspective maybe more than they should be just uh, with, with no evidence to back up my credibility. But like anything, it's something, it, credibility is something you build over time and it doesn't happen overnight. Let's talk a bit about your intellectual influences. I've read that Joseph Heath and Andrew Potter's 2004 book, The Rebel Cell, had a formative influence on you and your worldview. What aspects of the book affected your thinking about the economy, culture, and politics? Yeah, The Rebel Cell is an amazing book. I, you know, there are other books like it, like Bobo's in Paradise by uh, David Brooks or um, Thomas Frank's Con- Conquest of Cool. They're all, all sort of hitting on similar topics. I loved Rebel Cell in particular because it was sort of a exploration of what went wrong with the counterculture and the new left and sort of a critique from the left that um, a politics of subversion of trying to undermine, you know, jam the culture, you know, drop out of society, that kind of orientation, purely reactive, A, didn't lead to actual policy, progressive policy change, right? In fact, it was kind of disenfranchising to leftist politics because it presaged the Reagan revolution and everything else. And B sort of was a misdiagnosis of the problems that ail society that, that for the most part, you know, take an issue like climate change. It's not that there's like some deep ecological cultural factor that explains climate change. It's that there's a, a kind of shallow collective action problem. It's that our individual incentives don't align with what is collectively socially beneficial. And that seems to be true across a, in most domains, I'd say. Any intractable problem in the U.S. context in particular, like like race relations or rising crime rates or pandemic preparedness, you could attribute any of those big issues to some like deep systemic problem. But more often than not, it's because uh, individual actors in each one of those spaces have incentives which are misaligned with the common good. And part of politics and institution building and policymaking is trying to realign those incentives in ways that in ways that align with the common good, that, that facilitate collective action. So I really, I, I really I like the analysis. I, it also was simpatico with my like other reading in evolutionary psychology and social science and sort of rationalist libertarian literature that put a lot of um, emphasis on status games. That in, in the case of Rebel Cell, the title refers to the you know the fact that being a rebel, being being countercultural, actually sells products, you know, the, the cover images of like a Starbucks copy with the Che Guevara <laughs> image, but that actually uh, doesn't resist consumerism so much as feed into it because consumerism isn't really but the mainstream. The mainstream is only like the end stage of, of a consumer cycle. The consumerism is driven by people, early adopters taking on like new edgy ideas and only later do they, when they become popular and by dint of their popularity, you know, lose their coolness. Do we assign that like mainstreamness? So for me, that was also a, a kind of um, wake up call that, you know, you have to sort of step outside status games and try to understand the world social scientifically and not just be chasing whatever the fat is or, you know, 
misattributing like what the actual like causation is in a, in a social system. You previously mentioned that you came of age as a member of the libertarian movement, but there's also a high degree of futurism and interest in technology in your thinking and writing. Are there any thinkers in Silicon Valley who have influenced your work? You've written, for instance, about Peter Thiel and his heterodox worldview. And I've sometimes wondered if you view him as something of an intellectual influence. Not directly. I would say indirectly via Tyler Cowen. You know, a lot of people in the Thiel world you know, will point to René Girard, right? This uh, anthropologist philosopher who talked a lot about mimesis, the human propensity to mimic. And that our, you know, the Girardian theory is that desire is like, human desires are sort of created by our deeper desire to mimic each other. You know, that, that's not my point of view, but my point of view is very similar and actually comes via Rebel Cell because a lot of the intellectual precursors to Rebel Cell were in, in folks like Thorsten Veblen, who talked about the leisure class and, you know, why do, why do uh, rich people have like gigantic front lawns that they have to mow every week? <laughs> it's sort of a signal that you have a, have a bunch of like excess wealth that you can waste on a huge lawn. And there's all kinds of uh, goods and services that are kind of like that. And a lot of consumerism is a kind of mimic mimicry game where, you know, this is like something I was highly conscious, self-conscious of, like even in like high school and younger. Uh, so maybe I was sort of predisposed to seeing these, these status games. But the futurist part comes more through, I think, just a deeper interest in you know, what is the point of economics? You know, if the wealth of nations is the foundational book in economics, it suggests that development economics is sort of the original purpose of economics. It's, it's about raising standards of living, achieving new technological frontiers. Obviously, the Industrial Revolution is an example of a huge phase, phase shift in, 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 in industry and economy. So, you know, when I worked at in the government of Canada, where I was, was at the Atlantic uh, Canadian Opportunities Agency, you know, that was a regional development agency. And so I've always had this interest in development policy more than, you know, I do think of myself a little bit as a futurist, but, you know, I'm not like pining about the sci-fi world. I think, I think in a very developmentalist way where we have to pass through certain stages. Uh, there are certain things that have to fall into place. And you, you sort of think of the economy more as like a garden that you cultivate rather than a chessboard that you essentially plan, but also not just a purely laissez-faire thing. It's something that has a kind of organic quality to it. We'll come back to the question of development near the end. But let's move to some of your policy scholarship. In a 2020 report entitled Faster Growth, Fairer Growth, you and your colleague Frank Lindsay set a new left-right policy synthesis that you describe as the free market welfare state. What is the basic idea behind your proposed policy framework? And what are some examples of how it would change Washington's policies and priorities? The main purpose of that paper was to try to, um, I think the opening chapter is called the new policy synthesis. And really what we're trying to do is, is synthesize concerns on the left and the right into a coherent agenda. If there's any like meta projects behind my work and the Scanning Center's broader work, is that we are in need of deep structural reforms in many different areas in the United States. But achieving those reforms will require a degree of, a very relatively high degree actually, of political consensus. Not necessarily social consensus, but at least in Congress, there needs to be some degree of consensus. And it's not so much that we want the Washington consensus, just a Washington consensus. I'm predisposed to believe that Achieving that consensus will look more like taking elements of common elements of concern on both the left and the right and finding ways to reconcile them rather than treating them as irreconcilable, right? You, you hear these days even like discussions of like national divorce and stuff like that. And, and divorce is something that happens when you have irreconcilable differences. So my, my, my deeper belief is that 
all these concerns can be hopefully reconciled. So the, the, the core agenda we, we outline um, you know, first begins with a diagnosis of, of what went wrong and how we got here. It talks about uh, rising labor polarization and declining state capacity, the ability of, of U.S. government to actually execute on its plans, and those things leading to a deeper decline in trust in government, exacerbated by polarization, uh, and outlines the, uh, a, a really comprehensive agenda from you know, decarbonization, immigration reform, how to reform our healthcare system, get more bang for its buck. But I think because we take that more synthetic approach, we come up with ideas that are more original, but also more closer to the actual causes of the problem, right? Like if you read a, a left-winger on healthcare reform, it's going to be either, you know, Medicare for all or coverage, coverage, coverage. We just need to get more people insured. Maybe the root cause of the problem is high drug prices and insurance company profits. Then you read the uh, a libertarian economist or free market economist on healthcare form. It's we just got to get government out of the way. We don't have a real free market in healthcare, and we just are talking past each other. And you know, it may be that high drug prices are an issue. They're clearly an issue in the U.S., but they're not the issue. It's not why healthcare is twice uh, uh, as a percent of GDP as it is in other countries. So we're we're really trying to cut through the the BS and, and identify what are actual policy mechanisms that are. Uh, drive outcomes, and how can we reverse engineer the coalitions needed to achieve those outcomes? You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. How would you say the free market welfare state concept converges or diverges from Tyler Cowen's state capacity libertarianism? Uh, well, the free market welfare state was really a my attempt to explain why I why someone with my libertarian background you know, supports a large social insurance system, and I, and part of that was to point out that empirically, when we think about economic freedom as measured by you know protection of property rights, business labor market flexibility so on and so forth, it turns out that, you know, large Northern European welfare states actually do pretty well. <laughs> and, and, and this this is not to say that, like, the United States can become Denmark or Sweden, but it's to try to understand it. Why, you know, how do we reconcile that apparent contradiction? And the way I did it was to say, you know, size of government in terms of fiscal footprint is not the best barometer of economic or personal freedom as a classical liberal would understand it. To me, in a more Hayekian vein, freedom means being able to plan your life without uh, free from, you know, domination of another or uh, regulations and other interventions that try to, to mold uh, your life plan. And in, in many ways, social insurance programs actually facilitate the ability of an individual to plan their life. You know, if you, in the U.S., you're not going to change your job if you know, if, you, if you're not sure you're going to have life insurance or, or, I mean, health insurance. And that, that instability in the U.S. social insurance system you know, 
really constrains freedom in a certain way, constrains people's autonomy um, and ability to plan their life. So part of that, the purpose of that paper was to, A, defend a larger welfare state is consistent with liberty and, and, and economic freedom, but then to also say that in many ways, uh, we need a reform agenda that transcends just austerity and, and cutting down social programs to understanding how they can complement the market and even complete the market. And then thinking through, you know, what would that look like if it was designed intentionally with that end in mind, right? Um, how do we make unemployment insurance programs, for example, enable a more dynamic labor market rather than see it as simply a, a, a kind of bleeding heart program for people who've lost their job, right? You know, a country like Denmark has something like one in five, one, something like one in five Danes switch their jobs every year. And they're able to do that because really robust unemployment insurance systems, which protect their income in between jobs, but still like give them the push and the, and the training and the resources they need to re-enter the labor force really quickly. So I would, I would say that's different than the, the Tyler County state capacity. It's not, it's, not, uh, this, it's not mutually exclusive with it. But uh, to me, the state capacity issue comes more from questions of you know, bureaucracy. And do we have a government that is on rails, that, is, that is, you know, fetishizes procedure? Or do we have a government that pursues outcomes rather than process and has highly competent people to actually achieve those outcomes? You just talked, Sam, about the complementarity between strong dynamic markets on one hand and a social insurance system on the other hand. Let's talk about the potential tensions present in some of the ideas outlined in your 2020 paper. You've written about the need to advance pro-efficiency policies, including more immigration and greater investments in science. But you've also written about the need to address growing geographic inequality. Are these two priorities in tension? How can policymakers prioritize higher rates of economic growth overall without exacerbating regional disparities? I think they can be in tension depending on, on where you define the scope of, you know, quote unquote, efficiency. Another really formative book for me growing up was Joseph Heath's The Efficient Society, the subtitle of which is Why Canada is as close to utopia as it gets. Um, and part of the um, upshot of that book was to say, you know, efficiency is a, is a deeply misunderstood term in public life. Most people, when they hear the word efficiency in the economic context, have a think of it in purely technical terms of like how to get from A to B in a shorter amount of time. When really efficiency in economics refers to a Pareto improvement, a policy change you can make that makes someone better off without making anyone else worse off. In the efficient society, Heath says, you know, to understand that this isn't just purely technical, but it's actually a deep normative core to it, flip a Pareto improvement on its head. The opposite of a Pareto improvement is when you make someone worse off without making anyone else better off. (laughs) In other words, it's gratuitous suffering. Right. So, you know, one of the main theses of the efficient society was to say one of the reasons Canada works relatively better than the United States on a policy level is because we have a more efficiency oriented political norm rather, rather than the pure liberty norm. And that shows up in the form of, you know, positive sum games of our deep commitment to pluralism of trying to work together and being kind of, you know, agnostic about what your, your comprehensive moral commitments are, but trying to find areas of um, common concern. So I think of efficiency as a deeply normative thing and not just a matter of like minimizing costs. So that's the first point. The second point is, and there's the relevant scope of efficiency. If efficiency is this commitment to positive sum games, it's positive sum game with who, right? Mass industrial farming is not a positive sum game for chickens, <laughs> right? Because they're not in the social contract. 
you know, for better or worse, there are animal rights people who would like, like, the, like them to be in the social contract. But nation states define the relevant social contract because that's the setup that, that's the setup we have. That's the Westphalian setup that we inherited. And morality and, and ethics has to be embedded in a set of institutions. And a polity, a government, is like the reflection of the culture and the people in a set of objective institutions. And therefore, when we talk about efficiency in the context of a country, is a trade agreement going to rate, you know, do we do adopt any old trade agreement just because it's quote unquote efficient? You have to ask it in the context of that country. And one of the reasons, um, you know, I do think uh, a, a, a social welfare state is not just uh, a positive, but in some ways inevitable in a modern industrial economy is because without it, you can't guarantee genuine positive some outcomes. There, you know, creative destruction will create winners and losers. And part of having a efficient society is having the institutions in place to ensure that the gains from trade, so to speak, are actually equitably and efficiently distributed in a way that leaves everyone better off or at least not worse off, right? To minimize gratuitous suffering. So coming back to the, the heart of the heart of the question, you know, take something like um, airline deregulation in the United States. On net, clearly a, a huge boon for efficiency in the technical sense, right? Because after airlines were deregulated in, in the 60s, there was a, you know, just a, a steady decline in air, airline travel costs, right? Air, flying has never been cheaper. And although it's, you know, not, you don't have a lot of leg room, <laughs> it's, uh, it's much more efficient in that technical sense, but then also created winners and losers, right? Because if you were, you know, part of the byproduct of airline deregulation was these smaller regional airports going out of business because they weren't, they only, um, only existed due to a degree of like cross subsidization that disappeared. So that led to a degree of regional polarization that created sort of permanently worse off places. So in some ways, a more fulsome commitment to efficiency should cause you to actually pump the brakes a little bit, deregulatory reforms that on their surface look like they check all the boxes of economic efficiency. Because if you don't have complementary institutions in place, they can actually uh, undermine efficiency. In the case of trade, you know, if you pick up Paul Krugman's textbook on, on trade, it, it will say that in a modern globalized economy, trade between a rich, high productivity economy and a low, low wage economy can lead to education polarization that leaves a segment of the rich country's population permanently worse off. Not temporarily, but permanently worse off. Um, and so, you know, those things are, 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 are those, those are facts that you have to uh, deeply internalize if you truly care about classically liberal outcomes and trade policy. It's not just a matter of being a, a dogmatic free trader, and it's not a matter of having like trade support programs just pasted on as an afterthought. You actually have to think through how do we structure these outcomes so that policy changes leave, you know, not in a literal sense because this isn't possible, but find genuine positive sum outcomes for the for the members of the of the society. And you know, one of the ways I think Canada has actually done better than the United States on this front is uh, I don't know if this is always been the case, but at least when I was observing Stephen Harper administration, you know, Harper signed many trade deals. There were constant public consultations, you know, across the country, talking with uh, officials in different countries, but also ordinary people. And I think above and beyond just the pure economics of it, it's important to get genuine public buy-in. Because even if some people recognize that they're, they may be worse off or lose their job or their industry will move, 
it makes a world of different difference if they feel like they've been part of the process and were heard. And you don't see that at all in the U.S. context. You might have like some stakeholder meeting with like the head of AFL-CIO, but you know they'll cut trade deals, like they'll they'll pass a permanent normal trade relationship with China and wipe out two million manufacturing jobs, and it will just be like you know on page a twenty six of the New York Times or something. That's a great segue, Samuel, to my final question. Maybe before I ask it though, let me just say one thing that I hear in your immediate answer. And through a lot of your work is a call for restoration of political economy. It seems to me that particularly in the United States, it was diminished in the 1990s and early 2000s. And you and others are contributing, I think, to a renewed emphasis on this question of political economy. In a 2019 essay for National Affairs, you wrote about how the so-called China shock didn't just lead to labor displacement in the United States, but it also caused forms of process knowledge to be lost for good, including, of course, in the manufacturing sector. Do you think that the growing great power competition between the United States and China and the supply chain issues present in the pandemic will lead to a meaningful reshoring of industrial capacity back to America? And what, if anything, should public policy be doing to support that agenda? Just to answer your question directly, I don't know. If there will be a reshoring, it will be less due to great power competition per se, and more because China has uh, alienated itself from its neighbors and its its potential allies. You know, I, I believe uh, Samsung is investing in a large semiconductor uh, plant in Texas at the moment. Many countries that have the potential to be sources of foreign direct investment in the United States have to make a choice. And the choice is, do you put a plant in um, North Carolina and maybe have to in- invest more in uh, uh, skills and education than you would if you put the same plant in Shenzhen? Or do you put it in Shenzhen, but then risk having your CEO kidnapped and put on some <laughs> mystery island. And, you know, maybe you'll have all your uh, intellectual property expropriated or something like that. So I think uh, countries are waking up to the um, the deeper risks of China that, that the liberalization that had been taking place is beginning to reverse. So I think that can lead to, you know, some degree of reshoring. But I also think reshoring isn't the right goal, because specifically the re part of it. You know, it, I think the, the most common mistake in all these industrial policy and development policy discussions is fighting the last war and trying to uh, and and having a nostalgia driven focus to bring back the jobs that were lost rather than to uh, understand what systems you need in place to cultivate better jobs here and now and get a foothold into the industries of the future. You know that can be overstated because sometimes when people talk about the industries of the future. They have, a, have in mind you know, everyone learning to code or something like that. Whereas what I have in, in mind is more something like, you know, the German Fraunhauer, <laughs> spell check me on that, uh, institutes. They're, they're the uh, public academic uh, manufacturing institutes that, you know, provide direct technical assistance to small and medium manufacturers, show them how to upgrade their processes, try to solve, you know, information and coordination problems. The U.S. has programs like that but they are a fraction of the size of what Germany has for a country that is you know, four or five times as big and not just as much bigger, but also more geographically and economically diverse. So that's, that's more what I have in mind as a policy response. It's not to be reactive, but to actually be proactive and to, in that more developmentalist tradition, take a system level approach rather than pick and choose winners or fight the last war in some industry specific arms race. Well, Samuel, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues and sharing your insights on a 
a wide number of issues. I know our listeners will be glad to know that we have a man in, in Washington influencing the big public policy questions there. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.